Good evening, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to jump in a bit last minute uh, to chair this event. Um, I'm from the LSE European Institute. Uh, I'm not an expert, actually, on uh, French Muslims, but um, I have been knowing Joseph uh, for quite a while. We were actually doing, some time ago, uh, the PhD together uh, for some years. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted, therefore, uh, to have to chair tonight's event on French Muslims in perspective, uh, nationalism, post-colonialism, and marginalization under the Republic. Um, before I actually uh, introduce our speakers, uh, let me remind you that um, copies of the book are available outside, and uh, Joseph uh, will be signing them on stage, if you like, uh, after the event. Um, and at the same time, uh, the Twitter hashtag for the event is LSE France, uh, quite indictively. Um, so the format of the event will be the following. Uh, we will have first have a presentation by Joseph, uh, roughly 15 to 20 minutes, followed by a response by uh, Fiona Adamson. So uh, to the speakers now. Uh, Joseph Downing is a fellow in nationalism uh, here at the LSE in the European Institute, uh, whereas Fiona Adamson is a reader in international relations uh, at SOAS. Uh, so given that uh, Ezra um, will not be joining us, unfortunately, tonight, um, we will have ample time for Q&A, uh, so prepare your questions. Uh, and uh, without further ado, I yield the floor to Joseph. Excellent, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I suppose I should start to, to, to make a start, really. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, thanks to the LSE European Institute for hosting the event and to the event staff who always put in so much hard work um, behind the scenes with, with these kinds of events. Thank you also for Fiona um, for coming to, to be the discussant tonight, who is a very helpful mentor of mine when I was on secondment at SOAS a couple of years ago. And thank you to Angelo for stepping in um, at the last minute to sort of mediate, hopefully, our lively discussion um, after our presentations. He's one of my favourite colleagues and he's always very friendly and collegial, so it's very uh, nice of him to step in tonight. So, I'm going to basically speak tonight um, a little bit about my book that you've probably all seen outside, uh, which is called French Muslims in Perspective. So I'm going to talk a little bit about... How I see the book um, contributing to a debate in defining the field. So for me, this was a book that, that came out of uh, a particular normative, normative impetus that, that I got from seeing some quite, uh, I would say, questionable um, scholarship within the field. And I felt as if this, this was something that needed to be written in response to um, really a number of voices that I think had misconceptualized not only France itself, but France, its Muslim population and the relationship which is actually pretty good uh, between the two. So I'm going to do that, hopefully, by making some conceptual points, but then also bringing in some key uh, empirical observations from the field that I'm going to do through visuals. So I've prepared um, some photographs for us to look at that I'm going to explain and attempt to make some uh, important conceptual points with. And then I'm going to end, unsurprisingly somewhat, with some conclusions. So let's think about here... Uh, this question of defining the field. I think this is key, this is a key question not just in the French context, right? It isn't that we only have uh, a sort of sociological, political question about the definition of Muslim minorities or Muslim diasporas just in the French case. The French case has some particularities 
which make this question quite an interesting one to answer. But we can see, I think, synergies across a broader field, both in uh, diaspora studies in, in, in the European context, but also in the discussion of Muslims more generally, both, both, both inside and outside of their countries of origins. We have you know, questions of diaspora across uh, large parts of Asia, Africa, and the Americas that also, I think, could benefit from some of the insights that I hope to provide um, and some of the questions that I hope to raise through the book. So to begin with some of the more specific stuff about France, um, France actually doesn't have any official definition nor statistics about its Muslim community. Right? It sets apart as a very unique and very interesting case within the European context where it's not particularly friendly to the, the broader European norms of pluralism and diversity. And it's not just that it's not particularly friendly, it's actually illegal to collect statistics about um, ethnicity and religion uh, in the States. There are no census questions that ask uh, your backgrounds or your affiliations when you apply for a job. You're not asked to tick the kind of check boxes that you would um, in the UK. And for this, as a researcher, puts all of us in quite interesting places, precisely because we can't give you an accurate number, right? So we know that there are somewhere between one and 66.4 million Muslims in France, because that's the total population, but we can't give you an accurate proportion. Thus, we have a situation where the question about numbers and statistics can be and is, and I cover some of this in the book, uh, manipulated by voices on both the political right and left to further certain agendas, right? To overstate or to understate or whatever it might be um, the number of Muslims in France. So we've got these two sort of aspects of the state that give us this situation, one being laicite, the idea of the separation of church and state that doesn't come about, even though recently it's been called upon and redefined uh, with regards to questions of the Islamic faith in the public sphere, actually does not come about by these questions. None of France's hostility to questions of ethnicity, religion or culture come about because of migration from France's ex-colonies or from, or from the broader world. It actually comes from the internal diversity of France that France finds itself inheriting when the borders of, a, of the hexagon are established after the French Revolution. And as um, scholars have put it, there is a need to turn peasants into Frenchmen. Okay, so if you were to go back a couple of hundred years, the French that we know now would be unintelligible virtually to your average person in Marseille or in Breton or, or in some of the French regions. So really this, is a, this comes out of a kind of internal quest to forge a nation and to forge a sense of what it means to be French. So thus, as a citizen, you are just really, as I put it here, a bit facetiously, red, white and blue. You're not black, you're not Asian, you're not Arab, you're not Muslim, you're not Jewish. You, ju you just are an equal being in front of the state. Thus also you have this issue with uh, also statistics and questions of ethnicity. It isn't also possible to substantiate individuals' ethnic origin in France with any sort of given precision. But, as, as I kind of said, we need to, I think, rethink this within the field, and especially in the French studies subfield more broadly, because both principles and the evolution of laïcité are much more flexible than they first appear. So there's a dogma within the field of French studies and within the field of, of, of particularly this question of Islam in France that, you know, laïcité is the political DNA of the French state. It can't be questioned, it can't be reformed, it can't be changed. It is what it is, and it's how we do things. And this is sometimes what I've been told... Uh, during interviews and stuff within the field. Actually, if you look back at the evolution of these rules um, since the French Revolution, they're actually much more flexible and much more dynamic than they first appear. So we've got a question here of um, the 1905 separation of church and state, 
which is you know one of the latest reiterations of what I used to say, where actually, if you are prevented from leaving physically a public uh, a public institution, the the state thus then has to provide you with religious provision, right? So there's this exception. The French army uh, sees this as many armies do as you know we're the army and, and we do things. You know, separately and rationally, we've got important stuff to do, like wars to fight. The French state can quibble over religion, but we provide religious, uh, religious prayer spaces and chaplains within our institution. This is also the case with the famous fail ban of 2004, which has been covered a lot in the press. But the original iteration of the law, interestingly enough, actually argued for the provision of school holidays for non-Catholic religious festivals. So currently we've got this question of a, of a CAFO laïcité, in France, where we have a secularism but it's strongly marked by a Catholic heritage. The original law of the Veil Ban in 2004 actually argued to give uh, religious holidays for Yom Kippur and for Eid. Right? So we can see things are a bit more complicated than they seem and, and are much more dynamic under the surface. But then taking it away from the sort of state and national context and thinking more about you know, the, the particular group of people that the, that the book aims to address. We also, I think, here need to think about broader questions in the field. When we say, when we say we're talking about a Muslim or a Muslim diaspora or a Muslim group or a Muslim community, who are we really talking about? What conceptions, what preconceptions are we bringing to the table? And importantly, what is the reason that we're having this discussion? Right? All, of, all of these things are super important, right? Because the, the, this kind of definition, often in this case, of the problem is really important in the conceptions that are then peddled about a particular community. That's something I'm going to come to in a second. But the field more generally is extremely dynamic. And, and we can see this dynamism both in the nature of policy, media and security conceptions of groups. So in the UK, we've gone from a situation where those of Muslim origin, perhaps from South Asia in the UK, right, were covered in government policy under kind of race relations legislation at a certain point. So they were seen more as kind of Asians than as Muslims. But, but we then see after 9-11 and the war on terror, the, the switch to a government concern and a media discourse that very much labels a community of Muslims and particularly of British Muslims, right? And in France, this is also something that's occurred in, in, in a similar sense. We see a conception of a community which is based around ideas of ethnicity, i.e. the kind of misnomer of Arab, right, that comes from this post-colonial context, but one which also, after 9-11, moves to discuss an idea of a French Muslim, a French Muslim community that needs to be regulated, that needs to be observed, that needs to be questioned. But I don't think either of these observations necessarily get us much closer to understanding who is being discussed and in what terms. So I've got the first of my pictures here to give you some examples. Does anyone know who this is? One chance. Who is it? Yes, Zinedine Zidane, right? The famous French football player. I'm not a football fan at all, so I'm going to preface my discussion with that, right? But these, these make interesting points. In that, he is one of the key figures in the winning of the 1998 World Cup squad. He himself represents, not because he wants to, because as a, as a figure he's been very careful to stay out of these kinds of debates for a number of reasons, right? But he, as a figure, represents this uh, conception in the 1990s and early noughties of what a French Muslim is all about i.e. somebody of, of North African descent, right? primarily bound up with this question of Algeria, Algerian independence and post-colonialism. Well, neatly, and the French football team did this just for my book, obviously, neatly the French football team then wins the World Cup 20 years later, and we have this individual. Does anyone know who this is? 
Paul Pogba, right? Exactly, yeah. So a kind of more recent football player who is also actually a French Muslim. But we can see he looks quite different. And this is important, right? This is a, this is a really important point, both in France and in the broader European Muslim diasporic context, in that we have a, a change in the kind of ethnic and racial dynamics of a community whose primary definition that's been pushed upon them has been one of religion. And this is where scholars in the field, myself included, argue that, both in France and further afield, this question of a Muslim identity takes on facets and properties that are much more in line with kind of ethnic, racial or cultural identities. Right? Basically what I'm saying, in the French context, sociologically and from a policy perspective, the question of a French Muslim has become somewhat decoupled from a question of religion and a question of religious identity or a question of religious practice, right? It's taken on a far more kind of broader cultural meaning and a cultural understanding, a racial understanding in many cases. Um, and this, this is actually a product of, of really kind of changing migration patterns into France. We have a, a, an increase in West African uh, migration into France in the past 30 years. And the next picture I've got that you probably can't see from where you're sitting is something that I, a picture that I took in Marseille this summer that shows another much more recent metamorphosis really of the Muslim diaspora in the French context and also I would say across Europe of, of, of the coming of a super diversity of a Muslim diaspora. So this question of super diversity emerges out of a sociological observation that migration and communities become decoupled from the colonial experience. So in the UK, uh, in the 1980s, you had this question of a black, Asian, whites, right? In France, you had West Africans, North Africans, and whites. And this, my, my argument here, along with this sociological observation of super diversity, is that something much more broad is taking place. So while you have increasing, increasing numbers of communities made up of smaller individuals, such as you know, Eritrean communities across Europe that have fled government oppression in the past 20 years, you have this dynamic taking place within the French Muslim population itself. How does this picture illustrate that? Well, you probably can't see it, right? But it's a group of Afghan guys speaking Dari quite, uh, quite heatedly over a beach volleyball game, which is super interesting because Afghanistan's a land, not country, and these guys are on a beach in Marseille playing volleyball. I thought this was a really interesting uh, moment. But this is important because you have an increase in France and in, in the broader field of communities that come for various different reasons which are detached from previous historical or colonial links. In Germany, it isn't just that German Muslims are constituted by the large Turkish community, right? The Syrian civil war, the ongoing conflicts in Afghanistan, political oppression, all of these kinds of things cause, um, uh, cause the, really the Muslim diaspora to... to, to become much more complicated than it, first, than it may first seem. So, that's, that's, my, my, that's, my, that's my take on the, 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 the sort of sociological uh, definitions within the book. I'm going to talk now about the normative impetus. Okay, so what, why is it that I felt this was a book that needed to be written? Right? It's not just because we're all assessed by our research outputs and stuff like that. No, because I felt that normatively this was something that should be done. So, uh, you have a quote here from a book that was published in 2014 that I really took issue with. An idea of France being at war with its Arabs, right? Done by uh, Andrew Hussey of the University of London in Paris, which, which gained a lot of traction at the time. Problematic for a number of reasons. Already we can see in the title. 
Yeah, France is at war with its, i.e., uh, some some community that seems to kind of preside over or own its Arabs. Well, he got this a little bit wrong because you know a lot of the North Africans in France are of Berber ancestry. So even they would dispute this question. They they would definitely dispute the question of it being at war, but also this question of being called Arabs in this way. Um, so this is important because the way I see sociologically that we can combat these kinds of narratives, because sometimes I feel, I feel in this uh, scholarly subfield, we're rightly critical of focuses on control and security uh, being aimed at these communities, but, but because sometimes we produce only scholarship in problematic areas, sometimes we can kind of reinforce some of these ideas. Right? We investigate problems, thus we create scholarship about problems, thus we can kind of ape sometimes, I feel... Uh, or reinforce problematic narratives. One way I see around this possibly is an idea of a kind of sociological banalization of a community. Right, I've used this in an article and a reviewer commented back to me, but you're saying that they're boring? And I was like, no, that's you kind of mistake, mistaken what I'm getting at here. But it's an idea that comes from a question of banal nationalism. Right? An idea that the nation isn't just about statues and passports and, and uh, grand narratives and national anthems is something you perform in the day, right? When, if you're British, I mean, now we all drink coffee, so it's kind of a bit dated, right? But if you're British, you wake up and you make tea. And that is something that defines your kind of national identity. Could we attempt then, sociologically, to, to banalise and look more at the everyday rootedness of the Muslim diaspora in places like France? Could this be... Could this be normatively fruitful in, in us seeking to create alternative narratives within scholarship, right? Rather than looking at the exceptional, the extremely small numbers, for example, of French Muslims that only number in a couple of thousand that joined violent jihadist groups out of uh, an estimated population of maybe seven or so million, what, what, what is to be said for the voice of those other millions who are not problematic? And that's something that I think is important. This dominant concept conception of a conflict, uh, the war and terror, a war between France and its Arabs. We have on, on, on uh, your left here pictures of protests against the French occupation of Algeria. An idea that Hussey states that we can trace Charlie Hebdo and the Bataclan from the Battle of Algiers. There's this neat historical, social and political line that can be drawn from an from a independent struggle in North Africa to bloodshed on the streets in Paris, right? And I argue that this isn't, isn't accurate in the slightest, right? So this mimics these kinds of far-right voices. There's somehow uh, an incompatibility between France and its Muslims, which, which I don't feel is necessarily there. But this is not old. This idea of, of, of an incompatibility also needs to be traced back to secular conceptions of insecurity. An idea that you have riots in 2005 and you have this blamed on a kind of ethnic conception, a bit like sometimes you see in the UK... Uh, violence on the streets of London blamed on the breakdown of family structure and black and Caribbean culture and stuff like that. You have a question in France where the riots of 2005 sometimes are blamed not on structural forces of, of, of oppression but rather discussed as um, a secular problem between an ethnic group, i.e. Arabs, and um, the French way of life, however we can define this. But what, what, what is it about banal forms of insecurity that could possibly be made maybe more important here. Mm. So I've got a reference here to my, one of my favourite TV shows, The Wire, which if you haven't seen already, I highly recommend that you watch. They teach courses on it at Harvard, and if it's good enough for Harvard, <laughs> it's good enough for LSE, right? What you have here are much more, rather than cultural or religious 
uh, questions that bring about insecurity. You have actually structural, socio-economic, criminal questions, much much more in common with um, parts of southern parts of southern Europe, right? That have significant uh, issues with organised crime. So I've got um, some screenshots here from um, French newspapers. You've got one on your left, which is about the the, the, the real face of narco banditism, like narco crime in Marseille, where you have um, large numbers of, of deaths by gun violence, right? So you've got this highly organised, lucrative drugs trade that has actually long historical roots, roots that are in a white French population, roots that are in a Corsican French population, roots that are in a gypsy, a black, a North African, a Turkish French population, right? It isn't just that crime occurs in one community, right? The spread of this crime is quite far, and also has significant links to local government in many French cities. Right? So once you make your money in the drugs trade, you then move into building contracts and, and getting municipal contracts and, and getting involved with that kind of murky world of, 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 of French local politics. Why is this important? Well, if you look, on the, if you look at the other image here, you have something that, that, that quite shocked me, really, when I first started going to France from the UK. It's really the, 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 the frequent use of heavy military weaponry in really everyday crimes. Like, people rob corner shops, coffee bars, places like that with Kalashnikovs quite, quite regularly, right? What does this point to? To me, and, and if you look into some of the criminology around this, that there, there is a massive proliferation of military-grade heavy weapons. I saw in the French local newspaper a couple of years ago that they stopped a guy for a traffic offence near to Marseille Airport, and they found a rocket launcher in the boot of his car. Well, I mean, this, this, this stuff is, 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 is pretty common. This, to me, actually is much more important in creating insecurity in France than a discourse around radicalization, a discourse around it being a religious problem. No, it's a secular problem rooted in everyday insecurity, right? Also, something else that's important here, if we think about drawing this back to uh, a question of a French Muslim diaspora, we've got this question of service and victimhood. This is another image uh, from the Charlie Hebdo attacks of a French policeman uh, being killed by the attackers on the streets of Paris. And, and th this, this French policeman was of Muslim origin. And Olivier Awa, who's, who's quite an authority on uh, French security and French terrorism, uh, published a very interesting blog post. Now, because of, if we think back to the problems with statistics, we don't know how many French Muslims are actually in, in the armed forces because we don't know how many French Muslims there are to begin with, right? But he makes the case that there are at least 10 times more French Muslims in the French security forces than joined ISIS, right? So you have much more, if you think about this framing as a kind of integration problem, is there an integration problem if there are so many French Muslims serving to uphold the values of the French state? Right, and I think we need to ask some serious questions here. Also, what you see here in the other two pictures are pictures of French Muslims who themselves have been victims in recent jihadist attacks in France. Again, one of the few times we get a window into everyday French Muslim life, right? People that are killed in jihadi attacks, running bars, running cafes, having a night out with friends, doing their daily grocery shopping, right? This is one of the few times where we have um, a view into some of these more everyday narratives. How am I doing? Five minutes, okay, cool. So, the final thing that I'm gonna end on um, and, and I'm going to try and make some points with is this question of gender. So again, some of the sort of dominant narratives that we see 
coming out of France when we think about um, French Muslim women are some of the, the ones that are familiar uh, probably to you by the pictures that you can see currently. So one being on the left, um, a French woman in a full face veil, uh, the niqab, which was banned by the French state. So, so we have here a situation where a developed European democracy with significant issues of unemployment, uh, social problems, corruption, sees, to see it f sees it fit to spend significant state resources regulating women's dress. And there's an interesting anecdote. Le Monde, the, the French newspaper, during this time was like, okay, we're going to send out a journalist into the suburbs of Paris and we're going to ask women that wear this piece of dress, uh, why they wear it, who they are, what's their social context. There's a real, like, quite decent attempt to understand uh, a subset of French Muslim women. And the journalist came back a couple of days later to the editor and said, look, we've got a huge problem. We can't find any. And the editor was quite shocked. And it came out at the time, they were estimated that the number of women that actually wore the niqab in France were only in the hundreds, the, the, the low hundreds at that. Right? So you have a, 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 an established European democracy regulating the, the dress of a hundred or so women in its uh, territory. We have here the bikini ban. Uh, one reason why I'm quite proud of my adopted home of Marseille uh, in the south of France is that they were a city that didn't ban the Burkini, one of the few cities in the south that didn't, that didn't wade into the fray in this regard. And we can see here, this was an attempt not from the top down, but rather from the bottom up to get involved in the redefinition of laïcité and secularism. This wasn't a ban that started in the central state. This started locally in a small uh, area near to Nice and was actually overturned by the French Constitutional Court as being unconstitutional. So we can see here again the, the complexity of these uh, secularising processes in the French state. But there are, hidden under the surface of these narratives, really a, a lot to be said about the, the, the majority of French, women who, French Muslim women who play important parts in the political, social, cultural lives of France as a state. Again, if we can, if we can think back to uh, Ra's comment about you know, the, the, the huge number of, of, of French Muslims that are serving in the security services. We have an idea here of overturning narratives where women are kind of passive victims that need to be regulated by the state, rather to women who take part in a large number of, of, of domains of, of, of French life. Sami Agali, who's a French socialist senator for Beauchesarone, mayor of the 15th and 16th arrondissements of Marseille, the woman in the middle here, who was a, a victim of the jihadist attacks in Nice, even and in some quite problematic ways, Yasmin on the on the on the on your far right here, who is a household name in France for being, of all things, a pornographic actress. An idea that a French Muslim woman is involved in this kind of um, this this kind of industry is one that's quite interesting, right? One that has made her um, a household name in France, and one that also, I think, gives us an insight into a form of culture that cultural sociology has yet to take adequate, uh, adequate account of, given the huge kind of popularity and social force um, of this kind of content. And also, in the French case, gives rise, I think, to new forms of Orientalism and new forms of Orientalist culture. The idea that the Orientalism of the 19th century enables you to gaze on the Oriental woman in the harem. Right, nobody realised at the time that all these harems were actually fictitious and just in the imagination of the painters, but people in Europe often thought they were real. This, gives, this, gives, this, this kind of content is popular because it gives people the ability to gaze into the contemporary harem, which in the French case is the high-rise suburban housing estate. 
the place that you're not allowed to go, the place that you would not go to. This enables you to gaze into and gaze on these exotic subjects and the relationships that they have and the fact that all the Muslim men in, in, in these forms of cultural output are predatory and violent, right? This, this is something that, that is reproducing these cultural tropes in the modern period and was actually something that I found quite difficult in a lot of ways to write about. So, we need to think carefully about here, here about how we frame the integration debate. Is it that we have the integration problem that is so often discussed? What is it about the inability of media and scholars to account for the banal as well as the highly exceptional? Right? We know that salaciousness sells newspapers, but I would argue sometimes that salaciousness also sells academic books. Maybe mine won't sell, because I've tried to make it non-salacious, but we'll see. Also, the changing nature of Muslims themselves. Black Muslims, converts, Turks, Afghans, as well as the established uh, North African communities in France. Thus, the French Muslim identity takes on an ever more diverse socio-cultural and racial dynamic, i.e. decoupled from a sense of religious practice in many ways, both as a lived experience for individuals and also an identity that's discussed in policy and the media. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. And this was just a snapshot of what you can actually find in the book. Um, and from someone coming from a more quantitative background, you can imagine that uh, this is an impressive uh, journey. Um, and from someone actually doing most of his research in front of a computer, Joseph actually went through extended periods of field work um, to actually debunk some of the myths um, that uh, circulate both, as Joseph just reminded us, uh, in media, uh, but also in scholarly work, uh, and also in a lot of uh, uh, reports uh, that we read. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Joseph, for, uh, for this presentation. I will actually hand it over uh, to Fiona uh, for a response to this. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to speak for five minutes or so to, to uh, get a discussion going. And I first of all want to thank you, Joseph, for inviting me to comment and also congratulations on your book. Um, I think the presentation did a great job of summarizing the argument of the book. And I'm glad that you ended with the discussion of media um, and media framing because if you read the book, and I think the presentation also gave this flavor, it's organized in a way that with the chapters looking at different issues and kind of starting with the media framing and some of the more sensationalist media framing that you raised, and then kind of deconstructing and challenging this as you. So you start out with kind of a, a media image, and then through the chapters, you deconstruct and you get at this issue of, um, you know, the banality of, in a good sense, of Muslim life in, in France. And I really like that. And I also think because you cover these various areas, the book is also very rich. It's, it's accessible, but it also delves into lots of different literatures that you couldn't cover here. So it looks at securitization, critical terrorism studies, gender issues, and so it's also a great introduction into the interdisciplinary field. Another thing that I really liked about the book is that you place yourself in the book as the observer. So you talk about your field research, and that's not always the case in books in sociology and political science. And so you're very clear that you're writing, I think, from your perspective 
and your experience of being in France, and I really value that. And I think there's also a lot of um, really interesting discussions on, you mentioned the role of Muslims in police and security forces in France, which I thought was a really interesting discussion and isn't covered enough. And also the idea that the category of Muslim is really a political category rather than a, a religious category. Um, so lot, lots of good stuff here. Um, I have, in order to get a discussion going, of course, I also want to have some questions and some critiques um, for that we can that we can hopefully discuss further. Um, my first question is: it's a bit of an unfair question, but the book is about France and French Muslims. And while I was reading the book, I couldn't help thinking, well, there are some obvious issues such as the history of French colonialism and laïcité and so forth. To what extent is the book, uh, is the material in the book specifically something that's France-specific versus more general? So you don't spend a lot of time talking about the broader international context um, or the context in Europe. And some of the issues, such as the issue of diversity and superdiversity, um, and securitization, um, your focus on gender, these are issues that both transcend the French context, but also clearly have a specific manifestation yeah. in the French context. And so I think, again, it's a bit unfair, but I think it would be interesting maybe in, in this discussion to talk about comparing France with other cases and to what extent this is French specific versus it's a more general um, uh, European or international discussion. The other um, question I had was how much, um, and you can't help this because this is when you were doing your field research, but the very specific context of the time when you were doing field research, which I think was around the time of the Charlie Hebdo attacks and a highly securitized context, um, how much, because it's a snapshot of that period, does that affect the framing of your book? Because naturally you're going to be responding to this highly securitized context. Um, so just, you know, to think about that, of, of how you chose the focus and how much there's something very specific about that time period. Um, the other question that I had was, you keep talking about the field, redefining the field or the normative um, uh, context of the, the field. And I sometimes wanted more clarity as if this, if this was the field of, I thought I knew what you were talking about. Is it the field of French studies or is it the field of, is it Islam in Europe? Is it sociology in general? And I just wanted, I think you can't assume that we're all going to understand exactly who you're talking to. It's clearly an interdisciplinary um, audience. Um, now, this is, um, you know, I think your strategy, and this is maybe where I'm more critical, or I have a, a question, I'm going to push you a bit, is the balance between responding to the more um, sensational headlines and then deconstructing them versus spending more time in the book on kind of the everyday, um, what you call, you know, the sociological, the banalization. You know, if I have a critique, I think it would have been good to include more um, 
Muslim voices. Of you mentioned, you know, you mentioned lots of different characters. You know, the 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 guy in the police, um, the guy on the corner shop, um, the artist, the you know, the everyday life. I think for me, it would have been interesting to maybe include more of those voices um, and bring those into into the body of the book. Um, because there is a bit of a, a catch-22 of the book is about not essentializing and not not going down the road of the media. But then there's also the hook is often the media framing. And I think it's a very difficult line to to walk. And so that's something I, I wanted to to raise. Um, also, maybe how you dealt with that when you were when you were working on the book. Another point, and I'm probably going over my time here, is, and you did this in the presentation as well, and I think you rightly were critical of scholarship or narratives that draw a line between France's colonial history and contemporary um, Islamophobia or securitization or whatever. But I also wonder if maybe the book downplays some of the historical and structural issues such as colonial legacies. So I found the book to be critical but not decolonial, um, which, is, which is fine. And I think you made a good argument about why, you know, with, with the diversity of the population and, I mean, it's, you'll have to read the book. I'm not going to summarize the book, but I think you made a good argument. Nevertheless, I felt that maybe it was dismissed a bit too much, the historical and um, contemporary geopolitical context, um, that maybe bringing some of that in would be, would be useful. So it is maybe something that we can discuss in the, in, in the Q&A. And related to that, and this may be because of my own interest in research and, and being someone who works in the field of international relations, is I sometimes felt that France was in a kind of geographical isolation, and this was a very domestic politics-oriented book, which is, is good. But what about the history of involvement of states such as Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and Turkey um, with some of these communities in France? For example, with workers' associations or debates about um, uh, mosques and imams sent from... Algeria or Tunisia or wherever to to France. What a, there, there's a focus on the domestic politics, and I think that's that's useful. But I just was wanting to push you a bit on yeah. the transnational connections and how the French context fits with larger regional and geopolitical and mm. historical um, yeah. developments. No, definitely. So, no, no, they're really no, they're super interesting mm. questions. Thank you for thank that. you mm -hmm. very much. No, no, uh, okay. Shall we uh, entertain yeah. the response now? Should I? Yeah, 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 no, no, definitely. Thank you very no, much. So, no, no, this, these, are, these are, I think, really, really, um, really interesting and really valid points, and something that, that, that I perhaps could have made a little bit clearer, even in the book, in a sense, is, is I saw that there, there was a lot of um, good existing scholarship on the, the transnational dimensions of diaspora politics, precisely as you say, like the involvement of uh, North African countries in Turkey in attempting really to project their power into France via the diaspora, especially through, like, as you say, workers and, and religious institutions. Um, and also that in the field also had some good... Uh, as Well, this is a kind of an, a, a fortunate accident in a way, but I was asked to review a book uh, that's coming out soon 
also situated within a similar field that did a really good job of being um, an in-depth ethnography of um, a particular French suburb that really gave voice to some of the actual everyday voices um, on the ground. And that's one of the reasons that I try to pitch it more um, as a much more overarching arc. And you always have that issue um, in, in a piece of uh, scholarship where you have, a, you have that choice between going for, for breadth and depth. And I suppose here, because of some of the issues I saw within the scholarship, um, I decided to aim for the breadth. I felt the depth was, was done by other scholars really quite well, um, which, is, which is super important. I mean, the, the context definitely uh, really, really does dictate kind of the overall framing of the book. That particular time, uh, events as they were, and I mean, we saw this with, with you know, 9-11 after um, 9-11, you have a, a plethora of books emerging from scholars that are about being experts on terrorism and explaining the causes of terrorism and explaining transnational um, terror networks from scholars that maybe weren't involved in that field prior, right? Because it's, you know, the hot topic of the moment. This is, this is something that I saw definitely come out um, in the context, in the wake of, of Charlie Hebdo in Paris, that there was suddenly a plethora of literature that was uh, coming out into the field that I felt didn't do um, a particularly good job of really, of really giving a fair representation of, of um, kind of French everyday life. Um, let's have a look as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and again, it's, it's something else that um, perhaps as someone that works mainly on France, part of me didn't feel necessarily qualified in, in knowing the empirical context of other European countries to make more than a sort of speculative um, connection, which is in some ways why I held back from, from, from making too many statements about contexts like Holland or, or the, some of the um, Nordic countries or even perhaps the UK. And that I tried to avoid being guilty of that, uh, of some of those issues of, of speaking on a context that you're not necessarily that familiar with. So, but no, but, but super questions, and I really, really appreciate your input. Thank you. Thanks. Very good. Thank you very much, uh, Joseph and Fiona, actually, um, for the discussion. Uh, we are actually ready to open up to questions. Uh, if you can please state your name and affiliation uh, when you ask the question. Uh, yep, and so we will, we'll have actually a microphone, so just raise your hand and wait for the microphone uh, to arrive. We actually have one in the back over there. Yeah, yeah, the gentleman with the blue pullover. Thanks very much. That was fantastic. I wondered, I'm a journalist, and I was interested to hear what, I'm Tom, uh, I'm here just as a member of the public, but uh, interesting what you were saying about the media, and I found myself thinking that banality doesn't sell. So the key question really from uh, yeah, the media perspective is what you do that can, uh, what, what you think the media should be writing about. Um, if you take the example you gave, really interesting one about the number of Muslims in the security services in France, do you think the media should be, as you've done, highlighting those kind of what you crudely call success stories of integration more if they had the figures or even if they don't have the figures? Uh, or even I thought about here with uh, Nadia Hussein and Bake Off, there was a similar kind of um, celebration there, or do you think, or do I sense that you're saying that in itself uh, is a problem because it creates a kind of good-bad Muslim dichotomy? Um, 
and is the answer then true representation maybe just ensuring that Muslims are sufficiently represented both behind and in front of the camera uh, in the media say and then just seeing what happens because you'll probably get a much better media narrative if that's the case and then secondly just a quick one uh, does, does saying that you want to make French Muslim identity banal mean that you actually agree really with the state aim of ultimately not really having to recognize those identities other than Frenchness uh, in, in theory even if in practice they haven't done it very well does that make sense? Yeah definitely no totally thanks for that thank you very much no, the, 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 the first point is a super important one, and, and one, one that I'm going to answer uh, in, in, in the following way. Oh, yeah, sorry. One that I'm going to answer in the following way. It, it isn't for me in a free democracy to tell the media what to cover. I'm an academic. I'm not, I'm not a dictator that can tell, unfortunately, some of the media <laughs> what to do and how to do it. This is a discussion that my students will recognise all the time, in that in, as we study sometimes discourse and media discourse and discursive constructions of security, we constantly come to this dead end in that we can take an issue with media representation and what we see, uh, even quantitative, is unfair media representation, but yet we get to a dead end because it's not for us to tell the media what to do. And I think in a, in a free and fair democracy, we, we shouldn't, as academics, tell the media what to do. I mean, you could only imagine the kind of issues that would ensue. And this is also problematic in terms of the politics of representation. One of the issues you have here is uh, politics of representation can sometimes be done badly or, or done in a tokenistic kind of way. I remember back in the uh, 1990s, early noughties as, as a child where, you know, EastEnders introduced an Asian family, for example, right? And it was seen as something that was really an interesting commentary on the multiculturalism of Britain. But then, you know, the Asian family, you know, conducted honour crimes and there, it was just super, super problematic. And it comes back to really the, the, the key question, which is, to what extent do we see, and a normative question, to what extent should culture be pedagogical? To what extent does culture have to carry a pedagogical burden? I still haven't made my mind up on that, really, to be honest with you. Um, and as the media, unfortunately, part of the problem with the balance of power is we can't really tell them what to do. Thanks. The second question. The second question in French. Oh, yes, yes, very good. Yep, sorry about that. Yeah, great. Thanks, Angela and Fiona. Yeah, no, the question on French... This is, a really, this is another one that's also really interesting because on the surface, and especially from a, from a British or from an American standpoint, right, it's easy to look at France, to look at the issues that it has around statistics and recognition and actually to, to sort of perhaps think about making recommendations for some sort of state-based recognition. Right? And this, I would argue, e e e even within some parts of laïcité, is not totally outside of the norm. Something that I argue for my, in my book is an idea of a multiple state and a multiple republics. Right? The French state isn't homogenous or, and is also not homogenous in the way it applies republicanism. So if you look at the local level, often the local state will recognise markers of, of religious or ethnic difference in daily politics. Whether this is done badly, often this is done simply to agree with European norms. So if you're a French city, like Marseille, for example, in the 2013 Capital of Culture, or Lyon, which also tried to get the same title, to apply for that European money and to get that European recognition, you have to very much address a question of valorizing and celebrating diversity. But you're technically not allowed to do that, right? Because it's France and diversity doesn't feature. So you're stuck in this, in this sort of... Uh, 
in this catch-22 situation. Also on the ground, in, in interviews that I've conducted and fieldwork that I've done, often the responses that I've had from French Muslims at first kind of did puzzle me somewhat because I sort of expected often there to be, a, there to be more calls for a kind of multicultural type policy setup. Whereas actually what a lot of people fed back to me was that, no, there isn't a problem with republicanism per se, it's just that republicanism isn't working. And thus, we need to look at and reform the way in which, you know, pe people want to be French, I think, often in, in these cases, right? People want social progression, they want jobs, they want employment, they want all these kinds of things. They don't necessarily have a problem with the system per se, which is something that's often spoken about by much more right-wing voices, but they want the system to work. They want the system to deliver on that promise that we will treat you as French and we will, we, we, you, you will be accorded the opportunities as such. Thank you very much, Joseph. We have a question here in the first row. Would you like to add anything? Well, I might add something, yeah. just because I, I, I think those were great questions uh, in the back. And I probably have a slightly different view, that I, yeah. I do think representation matters, not just representation in terms of who you see on TV or in, in, in the newspaper, but I, I agree with you that the more diverse... Um, you know, the field of journalism is, both in terms of writers and editors and people behind the camera and in front of the camera, um, the better the coverage is going to be of these types of issues. But I also think you raised a second point, which actually I would probably like to hear more from you about the nature of, of how media is driven by sensationalism um, in order to sell, basically. Um, I know that I did, a, I did a media training for academics where we were actually told that the first thing you have to remember is that you need a narrative and it helps if you have a narrative of conflict, setting one thing against the other. And so when that is the impetus to always set up conflict, um, which it's a natural human reaction, I think, that one gets hooked on a narrative of conflict. Um, but it, it's an interesting issue, and I, I don't do media studies, so you're, you're probably the, the expert in the back on how to, how to sort of get out of that um, incentive to always set things up. as kind of, It's a larger issue, I think, for society in general in terms of political polarization and, and so forth, um, even when one looks at other issues, Brexit or whatever. Um, but I, I just wanted to add my, uh, my uh, two cents worth there as well. Thank you very much. Please. Thank you for your... <clears throat> Brilliant presentation. I'm a professor, I mean the visiting professor and a research fellow at RSE. <clears throat> I, at the very beginning, it says that in France, everyone is equal to red, white, and blue. I couldn't feel that is a problem because you can see that France is famous for idealism and romance. I found that idea is very real, idealistic. But it's like that. If I feel, if I can think of this problem, I think yes, because the Muslims might have their festival. <clears throat> if they are, for example, the civil servant, then the day in the festival, they couldn't have a break. I'm from China. For the Chinese Muslim, it's like that. If, if they have a same job as other Chinese, we'll give them a few more power, because we'll, we'll try to guarantee, because they have their special Needs we, we, we try to guarantee they can have the same living standard as other people. Well, my question is that what is you or the French Muslim feel that is a problem? 
if if that's problem, why in what sense you think that is the problem? Thank you. No, no, it's, it, that's a super. It's a super interesting question. I mean, I think something that's often under discussed is the way that the the way that ideals of inequality have shifted over time. Right? It isn't just that um, the French Muslim population is the only population that's dealt with. Uh, a, a status of inequality under a system that promises equality. Right? We have to think back, I think, to the very start of uh, the Republican tradition in France in that the rights of men very much were the rights of men, not women. Right? I.e. that this idea of, 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 of equal rights, political participation, citizenship, these noble goals, very much from the start had a gender dynamic that excluded like half the population. Right? I think here we also have to think about other historical failings of um, republicanism and the lack of recognition in that this idea of, of equalities of citizenship was not lost on the French Jews who were deported to concentration camps, right? An idea that rather than these things being, an, an, being anomalies, a much more um, recurring historical features of the failures of the state really to get to grips with really applying the radical notion of equality that it promises. Thank you very much. Uh, we had a question in the back. Uh, thank you very much. So good evening to all of you. Thank you very much for your presentation. I look forward to reading your book. Uh, actually, I just have a very quick, some Can comments you say on who you. you are? And, uh, uh, Mohamed Ali Adraoui. I'm a Marie Curie Fellow at the LSC Department of International Relations. Thank you. My field is radical Islam, political Islam, Middle East, North Africa, Gulf, and a bit of Europe because I wrote some pieces on Islam in, in France, especially Salafism. So just a few comments. <laughs> First of all, we know, I mean, roughly the proportion, about a proportion of Muslims in the French army today in the military forces and security forces. I have a good friend of mine, and he, he happens to have uh, written his PhD dissertation on this topic, Muslims in the French army. It's a bit more than 20%. So it's huge proportion. Wow. And it's really connected to issues that you have mentioned as unemployment, discriminations, racism, and whatever. So it's not only a, I mean, you can study it as a form of integration, but also as a result of, so it's never, you know, one black or white. The second thing is we know, once again, very roughly, um, how many Muslims we have today in France in 2019, 2020. It's actually a bit more than 2 million people. Because we have the authorization, I mean, scholars ha do have the authorization to study um, the religious diversity in France, for example. So, okay, we have five, six, seven millions of people of, who are supposedly Muslims, uh, meaning that they have a sort of Muslim background or Muslim legacy, Muslim heritage. Mainly, what do we mean, and I was interested in your point of ethnicization, when we, when we use the word Muslim in France, we mainly refer to the people who are from a very specific geographical region. Uh, so it's 2.1. We ask them the questions, do you have a religion? They say yes. What is your religion? Islam. So we consider them to be Muslims. And third point, you have not raised the issue of Islamophobia. Uh, because it's a huge debate today, an ongoing debate in Europe, in France particularly. And I would say that France is probably, most probably, the most interesting case in, in this issue today because that's not only about the far right, which is actually pretty not that important, it's really becoming, I mean, it has become a very mainstream, I, 
ideology or framework or whatever. So I will be interested in having this opinion. And last but not least, I'm French. Uh, I don't live in France anymore, and I'm not that optimistic when it comes to my country today, specifically because we have, I mean, some problems in raising these issues of Islam, Frenchness, identity, integration, and whatever. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. No, no, super interesting questions. I would like to see, actually, um, some of those studies. I think they sound, they sound super interesting. This is something, no, this idea of participation in the army being about um, really kind of a product of discrimination is really important, right? An idea that uh, French Muslims go into the French army because of a lack of other kind of employment or educational opportunities is definitely one um, that's really important and really you can see really active on the ground, right? This is one of the key um, areas um, upon which discrimination occurs. Something that I've, I've found quite interesting in recent years is the um, huge participation uh, by French Muslims in the gig economy, right? the Uber, Deliveroo, these kinds of um, uh, technological advances that enable people to be employed in quite precarious ways, precisely because of being shut off from um, formal uh, employment opportunities. Uh, the, in, the Islamophobia question, again, is, 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 is something that's super interesting, and I think I do cover it um, in some, some parts of the book, and something that is, is a real feature of... Um, the political and the media landscape, right? In terms of it being a kind of very much a, um, a regular public discourse that constantly crops up um, in the press, and this is something that I think I've tried to get out in the book that not to not to diminish the importance of this, but one of the renderings of this issue is that Islamophobia is legitimate because of the particularities of Islam and a Muslim community presents particular problems to. Western secular France, and thus this is why they're at the thin end of the wedge when it comes to being racially discriminated against. What I've tried to do sometimes in my book, and again, not to diminish the severity of this because this is super important, but is to look also at some of the historical processes that demonstrate that this isn't a problem inherently between Islam and France. This isn't a problem that Muslims present to the French state, and thus they are almost discriminated against justly. You can see if you look back in history, uh, in the 19th century, there were sensationalist media articles written in a very similar language to the language we see today, right? About an, Itali an Italian invasion in France. Oh my God, these unmanageable uh, Mediterranean people that are dark-skinned and from the Bay of Naples or from Sicily who are challenging our way of life and harassing our women and all of these kinds of important things. And I think this is something important. This isn't just a contemporary situation because a community is incompatible with secular values. This is, this is really a kind of ghost that haunts the broader French political and social narrative, right? And, and we can see this with contemporary and historical anti-Semitism, I think, as well. So I think this is, this is also something, yeah, like you say, it's really important, but also has deeper historical roots about otherness. Also, to achieve some gender balance at some point, if you are going to be next. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Emmanuel, and I'm a third year undergraduate in the anthropology department here at LSE. Um, so, I wanted, I wanted to hear your thoughts a bit more on the idea of choosing a field, because that was something that was brought up before. So, how, do, how did you choose your field? And, kind of, second aspect of that question being um, something you mentioned, kind of balancing sort of the, the depth with breadth. 
um, in doing this study. So how did you connect your particular field site to the kind of thematic field site in the title of your book? So French Muslims in perspective. Um, so if you could reflect a bit on kind of your, your methods. Did you just conduct field work in Marseille or was it kind of a more multi-sited ethnography and did you draw on other interdisciplinary approaches to, to make that connection? Um, I'm especially interested in that because it's quite rare to see um, scholars drawing on ethnographic methods outside of an anthropological or sociological context. So I'd really like to hear how you've kind of how you, you're straddling that. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, it's Thank really interesting. In, in, uh, from a di disciplinary perspective, I am all over the place, right? <laughs> we sit in a, an interdisciplinary institute here in the European Institute, which is one of the uh, fun and interesting parts of being in a department that straddles from, you know, hardcore, very clever quantitative economics that I know nothing about to um, ethnography and broader discussions of sort of discourse and constructivism in the social sciences. I mean, how I chose the field uh, is, is, is covered in the preface. I mean, it's, it's a field that became interesting to me. I grew up in a sub in, on a um, council estate in a suburb, on a suburb of London, right? And when I saw... Um, the riots in 2005 in France, I was quite shocked because of the similarities and because of the differences, right? The similarities in terms of um, suburban alienation, issues, socioeconomic issues, structural issues, transport issues, but also in the differences in terms of uh, the ferocity of um, unrest and the fact that it was something that was recurring and also the enormity um, of some of the public housing developments on the suburbs of cities such as Paris. I mean, these are places that I've, I've visited for research purposes, um, places like Sarcelle uh, as a suburb of Paris that contains you know, tens of thousands of people. Like, I'd never seen as a, as, as a Londoner uh, estates that, that were this big. And also estates that were built in such weird ways. Like there is um, an estate which, whose name escapes me in a suburb of Paris which is built, the, the apartment blocks are built to look like a Greek temple. I mean, this is like, you know, architects on acid or something, right, back in the 60s. But this, is, this to me, was super interesting, right? And this is where my original um, interest in the field came from all that way back. And then I chose the field for study. I, I did my master's at SOAS um, in Middle East politics, and I took some time out to travel where I chanced upon Marseille as a, as, as a place to visit. And I was super intrigued by the urban dynamics, the urban sociology, the connection that it had historically and, and contemporarily with other places. And that's really how I came to the field, to be honest with you. And I'm going to be honest here, right? It's kind of a product of a love affair with Marseille, right? More than, a, more than it is a product of the love affair of France. So I did a comparative element in my PhD where I looked at other field sites in Lyon and Paris, but Marseille really was the place that grabbed me and really was the place um, that held my attention. Um, in terms of the field, this is something that, that Fiona raised that I didn't respond to, which is super interesting. Um, and the problem with your own perspective, I think, in academia, when you write and things seem self-evident to you, right? We all have this issue where you write something, you guys as, as students often have this, we critique you with this in, in essays, right? Where you write something and you're so familiar with it, you can't see that you haven't made something obvious to the reader that is obvious to the writer, Right, and this maybe is, is one of the things that, that I've I've missed here is this idea of of a field. To me, there seems to be a quite a coherent, um, contested field of kind of diaspora Muslim diaspora type studies that exist. But but maybe that that field and but that field by its nature is extremely diverse, 
extremely multidisciplinary, extremely interdisciplinary. And really, I mean, one of the reasons why my book is so diverse and sometimes why I didn't have the chance to go into depth in terms of ethnographic fieldwork as much as I would have liked to was because it was something that I kind of wrote on the side almost as a side project. So I did my uh, first set of research on um, local politics in French cities and how local policymakers sort of bent and kind of manoeuvred questions of secularism and recognising ethnicity and local policy. Um, and then my second set of research has been looking at um, discourse in large social media data sets. So like, you know, data sets of 80,000 tweets and stuff like that, which is some of the stuff I've published and I'm publishing at the moment. And this really I, I conceived of as something that was required in terms of it being a much more overarching, broad examination of a field, especially something that, that is was absent from the field more generally, but especially something uh, that was absent in English. So I hope that makes sense and I hope that helps. Just to add to that, actually, uh, you, you discover probably from the book that uh, uh, your first exposure to France came quite late. Like uh, you were outside the UK for the first time when you were 20. Mm. Uh, and the first exposure to France came because he missed a flight from Morocco back to London. <laughs> yeah. So he had to go through France and then he got stuck in love with it. Uh, yep, yep, yep. And I had a very good, I had a very fun four days in Paris with no map, not speaking any French at the time, so, which, was, which was super interesting. Which then led to a decade-long research on the topic. <laughs> Please. Hello. Is it my turn? Yeah, yeah, it's your turn. Hi. Uh, my name is Suzanne. I'm a master's student uh, from the social policy department here at LSE. I'm originally French. Um, um, it's, it's actually a good coincidence because you just uh, talked about the 2005 riots and how that sparked your interest in the field. Uh, so, because my question is regarding the, um, the 2005 riots, and I was just wondering, um, could you elaborate on the relevance of um, bringing up the case of the 2005 riots and urban segregation just in general in a lecture about French Muslims? And my second question is, um, how um, um, how different do you think is the French case compared to, um, let's say, the British case or the Dutch case regarding um, urban segregation and minority groups in general? Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. No, the the the, the relevance of like spatial forms. Ge you know, geographical forms of segregation in France is super important, right? So something that comes up when you look at f uh, studies of marginalization and discrimination, as well as taking on kind of ethnic um, and religious markers, i.e. your name or your appearance or what you look like, they also take on geographic markers, right? So people, um, when applying for job interviews or, 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 or other kinds of places, um, are discriminated against based on their postcode as well, right? An idea that you have these places that exist almost in parallel, both architecturally um, and socially to the centre of the city. So there's an idea um, of, of these two kind of contesting models, right? The idea of the sort of, perhaps how London used to be in some ways and how some American cities used to be and still are, that you have a poor centre and rich suburbs, right? The idea in France that you have some sort of reverse where you have uh, a rich city centre and often in many places um, and poor segregated post-war suburbs. This, is, this, this segregation is super important, right? You, you, you see it if you visit some of these places from the centre of Paris, right? The, 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 you know, the, the, the bulk of jobs in a post-industrial 
economy where many of the factories and many of the, the sort of heavy industry in the Parisian suburbs are closed, the bulk of employment is in the centre. Right? To get to the centre from an estate is super expensive. It's super difficult. It can take you uh, to get to some places that are only a couple of miles from the centre of Paris, like an hour and 40 minutes, two hours. Because you've got to take a bus to the train station, and you've got to take a train, and you've got to take a metro. Like, it's super, super, super difficult um, from the perspective of, of, of this. This, this is, this is I've, I see this as really being a fundamentally important um, aspect of the puzzle, and also something that plays into really the, the shift and the decoupling of a question of identity away from, and this is one of the reasons why I brought it in, away from just being about religion and about religious adherence, right? As Mohammed stated, there's this difference between those who come from a background with some sense of Islamic roots and those who practice a certain religion, right? And often in a sort of socio-cultural context, in a policy context, these two things remain under the the blanket term of, 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 of a Muslim. Right, and this is why looking at these sort of secular dimensions to this identity and the secular dimensions to the definition of a community is super important because one of the things that defines the experience in a discursive public sense is is an association with high-rise estates, is an association with being of the suburbs, is an association with being part of a kind of rap hip hop subculture. Now, this is far from this is far from the only sociological manifestation. There's some super interesting work taking place in France at the moment about the emergent and highly successful um, middle-class French Muslim population, right? People that are kind of against the odds have done well in France and progressed away from from suburban segregation um, and stuff like that. Also, the suburbs themselves are much more diverse than just high-rise housing estates. You'll have interesting situations where um, you'll have... super deprived high-rise housing estates next to quite quaint, pleasant, almost, you know, uh, areas of housing that look like small, quaint French farmhouses next to each other, right? So there is a complexity there, which I think is often um, not taken into account. I often think about London, right? Looking back to, depending on how you see it, right? Um, some of, some, me and some of my friends look back to 90s London as, as either, depending on what day of the week you ask us, a golden era, Yeah? when London was messy and cheap and slightly dangerous, or if it's late at night and we're feeling slightly anxious, uh, a dark place, you know, where, where the streets in some ways were much more violent and it was full of smoky pubs and nightclubs. and It's a very different place. Why am I bringing this up? Because I, I feel as if we, we in the UK or in London definitely had much more of a patchwork than a large capital city like Paris. But we seem to be doing our best rather than to facilitate that, to ape the Parisian model of pushing the poor to the suburbs, right? It's really interesting for me to see changes in places in the UK like Hackney where, you know, as as a teenager in the 90s, you'd be quite reluctant to go to often. And I now hear my students before classes talking about, oh, we're so lucky we managed to find a a flat in Hackney that we could afford. And the 90s London kid in me is thinking to myself, are you great? Hackney, what's happened? Right, so I, I think making a comparison is always quite difficult, especially given the kind of policies that we've pursued in terms of, of, of geographical spatial segregation from a, so, from a sort of social policy standpoint in the past sort of 20, 30 years. I've, I read a really interesting statistic the other day that 
in London alone, something like 80 uh, social housing developments are slated for demolition in the next few decades. I mean, this, this, is, this is such an important um, and stark process that we're undertaking really in removing uh, any kind of affordable housing from the centre. You know, we seem to be trying to ape a model that clearly doesn't work. Um, I'm Meryl. I actually work in policy, but I just graduated from Durham University, so quite far away from here. Um, I'm not sure if you cover this in the book, but it, it occurred to me um, when you were talking about the impact or the sort of power, if you like, of academia and the media when they're sort of drawing these linear lines between France's colonial past um, and sort of the reality of the present. I just wondered if you thought about um, sort of impact of literature and culture more broadly on this. I mean, thinking about writers like Michel Welbeck and Boulem Sansan, like in, in my opinion, they, they tackle questions of French Muslim identity quite clearly and part of their, I don't know, perhaps responsibility, if you like, is to sort of make this link explicit, um, not just in terms of history, but in sort of drawing out broader patterns, even to do with, with genocide, with intolerance, with um, xenophobia. Um, I was just wondering, do you think there's less danger in doing it that in sort of drawing out those similarities and those lines of history in that way? Or is there perhaps more value in doing it? I suppose you get less criticism for writing sort of a, a fictional novel about it than you would trying to write a sort of academic piece. No, 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 I'll answer this one. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it, it, again, again, it's a, a fascinating question. I mean, the, 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 the culture that, some of the cultural stuff that I've studied and that I've wrote on demonstrates my bias in a sense, right? I'm not, I'm not a huge um, consumer of novels. So this, this is one of the reasons why it doesn't feature more broadly in my, in my work. And I think one of the danger in seeing these, these roots as a way of settling or addressing really problematic pasts is the relatively is a kind of echo chamber effect I sometimes wonder right so if if you see novels or formal fiction as a way of really addressing the nation's problematic history is it not that the people that are likely to buy and read those books already consider it to be um, a problematic history right? I sometimes wonder that I don't know if it's necessarily accurate but definitely something that, that, that is a really interesting place and this is one thing that and I'm not trying to say that it's any worse than the UK because this is also something that we do quite badly here, in that France really in a public sense finds it very difficult to still deal with in the public domain questions of the colonial past, right? Uh, questions of um, independent struggles, questions of French atrocities abroad. I think as many European countries do, we do, definitely here in the UK, we still definitely have significant issues um, in doing this, and I think it, it still remains a really problematic context. Yes, th thank you for that most intriguing of subjects. My issue is that you mentioned at the top the, the post-colonialism and the marginalization under the French Republic. In your experience, you mentioned a number of issues. One I haven't heard of called super diversity, which I'm intrigued about. The second is sociological vandalism and yet another one called the transitional connections in your talk in your experience do you believe that 
since writing the book, or as part of your analysis, that the French Republic in its present form can design a practical solution for those on the margins of French society post Hebdo? No, excellent question. And I would say the current system as it's configured, the current political candidates that run for office, actually I don't think can come up with practical solutions. Right? You have a, you have a situation in, and this is not something that's limited to um, those of ethnic minority background in France, right? This is something that's really important. There's, there's, a, there's a current, or there was a current a few years ago, cultural trend uh, in France uh, when a book was released by a young uh, white French girl who had a PhD, in, I think it was in philosophy, who was working on um, the cash till, the checkout of a, of a supermarket in Paris. And she was using her journey and using this, this, her, the situation that she found herself in as a real indictment of some of the issues with joblessness and the lack of opportunities in France more generally uh, for someone who, who, who saw themselves as highly educated and saw themselves as being employable in a much greater capacity. Right, so I, don't, I think this is something that, 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 as, that France suffers from in much more general terms. One thing that I've been quite critical about um, in terms of the Macron presidency and also in Macron's presidential campaign is issues of dealing with some of the urban failings and some of the urban segregations was totally absent from his election campaign almost, right? And has been totally absent from really the national economic agenda. Tackling things like state inefficiency, the huge amount of GDP spent by the state in France, I think, is also something that's really problematic, right? You have a situation where um, you have a lot of resources going into um, economic domains, which essentially are kind of a bit of a closed shop, right? You can get jobs based upon um, connections. You can get contracts uh, locally in cities as a, as a, as a business, through people that you know, through uh, some some forms of corruption, and I don't think I don't think the system or the politics rigged in its current form really is a, is even seeking to address often some of these problems. Thanks. So we go back to the note of pessimism that was <laughs> earlier presented. So there was a, a question in the middle okay, and here, and then first row. Shall we go left? Left, interesting. The last two, yeah, if yeah. you want. All right. Yeah. Um, Hello, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, I'm also a student in the Department of Social Policy at LSE, and I was just wondering uh, if you had felt uh, on two topics, it's, uh, I think it's very related to the media framing of Muslims in France, although you didn't really touch on it on your presentation, so I don't know how much of an op opinion you have on it, but I have the feeling that right now in the discourse in France, um, two critical uh, ideas that are brought. First, the first one is kind of the movement of ex-Muslims. So, for example, uh, Zineb El-Zawi, who, who was a Muslim before but now is not anymore, and she is really the, the tandem of um, free criti criticism of Islam in France right now. Uh, the media really love her, and the far right is even using her as a way to be to defend this free criticism of Islam. And the second one is how I feel French media is uh, more and more trying to blame uh, anti-Semitism in French uh, on the Muslim community. And yes, like if you had ideas of deconstructions of 
Yeah, definitely. Those two ideas. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. This, no, no, no. This, the, the question of um, anti-Semitism is a really important one in France, precisely because of the connection that's increasingly made in media analysis, which paints a picture as if anti-Semitism is something that came with migration to France, which historically is definitely not true, right? And that's and that's something that I try to get at with my book, an idea that, and this is perhaps a little bit controversial in some ways, but the idea that Vichy France and its policies are seen often as exceptionalist, right? Okay, this happened because of German occupation and, and, and issues around the, the, the Nazis enforcing norms through um, uh, a token French government. However, if you scratch the surface a little bit, right, the individuals who are important in the state in terms of... Um, in the police force, in the security forces, who, who essentially sent people on trains to their death, right, were present in the state prior. The ideologies were there. The, ide the ideology has been there. The ideology is there. And France isn't unique. This, this, is, this is something that we can see um, across many different European contexts. We can see this rise, rearing its ugly head in the UK itself today, right? This isn't something that, 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 that France only suffers from. Um, the other thing that's important, I think, with this question comes back to, to a point that was made uh, by Mohammed in the audience earlier, was this question of, um, of a French Muslim identity that has got nothing to do with religion. Right? So you have on one hand an interesting example that you gave of somebody a bit like in the mould of several other, other actors um, across Europe who come out as uh, being now kind of leaving their religion and then becoming staunch critics of certain aspects of patriarchy, certain aspects of xenophobia, etc. But something that's important here, I think, from a sociological context is that will not stop her from having that identity forced upon her in a public sense. So something about social identities that's important here is their intersubjectivity, to use a kind of sociological term. So it doesn't matter really, in some senses, who I say I am or who you say you are if the people you're trying to convince don't believe you, essentially, right? Or, on a more practical level, if your name is still the cause of discrimination on a job application or if the way you look is still the cause of you not getting appropriate housing, right? So these things, I think, are, 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 are super important in, 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 in the way that I sociologically think about um, how this identity has emerged and, and progressed. Do we have one more? Yeah, yeah we have one last question. Hello, um, thank you. I, I share your love of Marseille. Uh, Excellent. I was just struck by a parallel between the erasure of difference represented by uh, the red, white, and blue laicity, uh, where you don't trouble yourself to make a head count of Muslims, say, but then obsess about the half a dozen French women who wear the niqab. And I saw a parallel with something that someone pointed out to me that there's actually more money spent chasing the sans-papiers than it would cost to house them and uh, keep them in some style for the rest of their natural lives. And I just wondered how that kind of works within the French mm. state. Mm -hmm. The difference with the... Yeah, definitely. definitely. The I repeat state. the question because I think it was a bit low Yeah. Oh, I think, if I understand correctly, um, it was a question about um, how state-based state allocated resources are spent in, in, in kind of law enforcement in some ways, right? So something that I think also that I, I go into a little bit is um, some of the issues around uh, 
security and some of the inefficiencies um, that exist bureaucratically at the state level. So, like the the the, the system by which like there's a list, right? Um, that that individuals who are security concerns are placed on that exists in France, right? One of the issues is like the list is huge, and the list has so many different categories. The list is 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 is, is really quite complex. You can be put on there for a number of different reasons, and, and this this demonstrates to me, I think, a kind of often the bluntness of um, policing and security. This is something that that, that you see quite often uh, sometimes in the policing of of suburban areas in uh, places like Marseille. So there's there's um, an estate in Marseille where Zinedine Zidane comes from, which is called uh, Le Castellan. And it's known in Marseille as the kind of open-air marijuana market. Right, so a friend of mine in Marseille told me that he would ride his very expensive motorcycle into the middle of this estate which is seen as super dangerous and would leave the motorcycle running and this very expensive helmet with the junior members of the drugs trade they would look after it no problem he'd go and buy some some marijuana come back the engine's still running get back on the motorcycle and leave right and the only time that you, the only time that police would be present in in this particular housing estate and this is something that's quite common on these housing estates is they will turn up every three or four years with 20 vans of police officers kick a few doors in, seize a few drugs, again, a similarity possibly with the wire, right, in terms of the policing, which is about the, almost the politics of the deed and showing something rather than doing something substantive, right, which is a super inefficient way of policing. Like, there are, it's common for people to say uh, in, in these high-rise estates that if you call the police, they don't come, right? The idea that you have a problem, you're burgled, you call the police... And the police are probably not coming there to investigate a crime. It's too dangerous. I mean, what, are the, what is the state doing, right, if the police force is that ineffective? I, a, another person that I spoke to in Marseille um, recently was saying to me that uh, he could acquire a, a Kalashnikov for around 1,000 euros on his housing estate, which is only a couple of, si- a couple of miles outside the centre of Marseille, right? We see here real problems with inefficiency and ineffectiveness uh, in, in, in security forces, I think, and, and, and on a daily basis. Thanks. Okay, so we have come to the end of uh, our journey uh, here, uh, but you can actually continue this journey if you grab a copy outside and uh, ask other questions to Joseph, who is, will be around. Um, and uh, I would like to thank Fiona. Uh, and Joseph, uh, and actually thank you for uh, participating in such a lovely way to the discussion. And I would like to thank Angelo for, for his kindness in stepping in the last minute to be the chair. Uh, thank you so pleasure. much. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.